Welcome to Ritual of Practice Podcast. I am your host, Angela Houghton. The intention of this podcast is to inspire your practice. I thought it would be fun to offer stories of how different people integrate practice in their lives. I am so appreciative of the humans that share their experience on this podcast and to you, listener, for joining us. May you show up for what lights you up. Today on the podcast, I interview my friend Nina Coltnow. Nina lives in Washington, D.C., where she has been teaching math for over 30 years. She shares her personal practice of math, and I think you'll be surprised at what you hear. A big part of the conversation is about making math fun and using intuition. So I hope you enjoy the listen today. And if you enjoy it, please do share it with someone you love. Thank you for listening. Good morning. Good morning. Awesome. I am here on the podcast this morning with Nina Colt now. Nina and I met, oh goodness, I don't know how long ago, but I feel like it's been a good 10 years at this point. Probably. <laughs> yeah. So Nina, would um, I, f- I believe I first met you at the yoga studio that I owned in Moab when you came in as a student. Is that what you remember? Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then I would say we started to develop a closer relationship during COVID when you were attending my cl- yoga classes via Zoom. Right. Even though we were on opposite sides of the country. We were. So yeah, of course I'm in Moab, Utah and Nina lives in Washington, DC. So, and then our friendship continued after COVID um, when Nina would visit Moab and we started spending more time together. So I shared with her that I'm doing this podcast and she just had this fun idea that I, it was a big yes when she said, well, I practice math. (laughs) And I was like, oh, how neat is that? Like it was um, nothing I had interviewed anyone on yet. So I'm here this morning to interview Nina about her practice with math. So my first question, Nina, is what initially sparked your interest in math? My father. Um, I probably have a brain that just works mathematically, but I remember from a very, very early age, my father um, coming to me with posers and puzzles and games. We actually had a book called Posers that were kind of tricky logic problems. And I remember that I could almost never get them by myself. For me, they felt very tricky. But once my dad would talk me through them, then I was really excited about them and could contain and remember the thinking that he, you know, the logic that he helped me understand to get through a particular problem. And some of those exact problems are still ones I enjoy giving to my students. Um, The other thing I did with my father was uh, he used to get Scientific American magazine every month because he's an engineer and it has a math problem section. So we would do those together. So I grew up thinking math was totally fun. Awesome. I So you said poser and I've never, I don't know what that is, but then you said something about a tricky logic problem. Is that what a poser is? Yes. Yes. They can take many, many, many forms, but you're probably familiar with a logic problem like 
there are three cards face down on a table, you know, to the left of a king is a ace, to the right of a diamond is a spade, and you have to figure out where all the cards are. Okay. I mean, it could be anything, but that's a quick example of something that you might have heard something of. Fun. I think my son would enjoy this stuff, so I'm going to have to look into this. Um, so did you go to college then to study math, Nina? No, I was kind of the math whiz kid in high school and went through calculus in high school, but I never thought I would be a practitioner of math or a math teacher. It's just really the way I thought and what I was good at. I went to college for um, anthropology because I found it fascinating studying different cultures and studying human origins and the fossil record. Um, But when I got out of college and National Geographic didn't have a job for me. <laughs> I was too immature to entertain grad school at that time. I I worked um, just a couple of odd jobs for a couple of years, but one of them did involve teaching actually chronically mentally ill adults, at which point I realized I really enjoyed teaching. And so I did go to grad school then for a year to um, actually in the science of teaching, which really informs the way that I teach math, because what we learned in the science of teaching and studying the science of teaching was how the brain makes sense of things and how children's brains develop and how to take anything that I understand apart and help reconstruct it for a student, any student, child or adult. And so this might be jumping the gun a little bit in terms of our interview, but um, I was a classroom teacher then for probably 30 years, um, predominantly in math in the middle school. But now I'm a math tutor. And what I really love is getting inside of somebody's brain and understanding how they construct whatever it is they think they understand now. Mm. And then taking that particular brain and what I'm trying to help it understand and building a scaffolding that will get us there. What did you do in the classroom when there was a large gap in understanding where, I mean, how many kids did you typically have in a class when you were teaching middle school? I, uh, fortunately for me, um, was in generally in private schools where the classes would range anywhere from, I mean, my smallest class probably had four or five kids in it up to 20 at the greatest, but generally maybe around 13, 14, 15. And we did sometimes have a large gap. Um, I'm somebody who's tends to be, or at least I was very well prepared. And so if I wanted to teach a lesson on adding fractions I had a, you know, not only a lesson plan for how I I would present it, but a lot of problems, both, you know, for all ends, both ends of the spectrum and in between. So if students got it really fast or they already knew how to do it, then there would be more challenging problems for them to work on. And if there are kids who are really struggling with it, I might be able to give them a little more attention while I had the middle kind of students getting some practice uh, maybe working on a, some, some problems in a group, perhaps. That's really so, beautiful, Lena. Yeah, well. Yeah. I don't know that, well, yeah, I don't want to make assumptions. So, 
<laughs> I wonder if that is a norm for um, prep or not. Uh, I, I I think it, I mean, I know, you know, maybe I know a skewed sample of teachers, but the teachers I know will do anything to reach every student in their class if that's possible. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Inspiring. Um, I'm curious. So do you also have a daily math practice yourself, like where you're doing a puzzle with your coffee or something along those lines? <laughs> it's interesting that you asked that. I would not have thought of this as a daily math practice. Um I do in the morning have my coffee and, and need kind of a cone of silence for about 20 minutes. And the puzzles that I work on are word problems that have to do with logic. So um, something like, well, Wordle is a tiny example, but there's Octurtle, for instance, where you're doing eight of those Wordle problems at a time mm -hmm. in various different formats that have quite a bit of challenge there's a New York Times puzzle called, I think it's called Connections. I'm not very good with names. I'm really good at numbers. <laughs> you're trying to group words. I'll do the Sunday Times crossword puzzle or quote acrostic or something. And I think that those are very, I approach them very mathematically, actually. Um, I know most people think that they're word problems, but I think that uh, having talked to people about it, that I probably have a more methodical and less intuitive way of approaching those. So I really try to let my intuition in mm -hmm. as well. But something else that I do for myself is some of the students I have who are at the top of my range might occasionally bring me a problem that I don't immediately, I can't immediately figure it out, but I know I can figure it out. And I really love those problems. And I'll occasionally have to say, you know, I have to I have to think about this one. And this has to do with connecting the intuition to the math. I'll work on it maybe for a half hour, hour. Maybe I'm making some progress. Maybe I'm not. And then I'll sleep on it. And I'll invariably fall asleep puzzling through it and almost always wake up early, like four in the morning with an aha where suddenly I, my brain while I've been sleeping has been churning on it, I guess. And I wake up and I found whatever the key is that allows me to continue and solve the problem. That's, that's a lot of cool. Cool. <laughs> That's super cool. Cause you, you said intuition and I was like, Ooh, neat linking intuition with math and, and solving problems. Well, I have, this will be, I'm wondering what you'll think about this because um, it does seem like solving problems mathematically are in the mind, but um, I've been chewing on this idea that um, solving problems in general, not necessarily mathematical problems, that problems can't, the solution is not in the mind, that it's in the heart. And so um, it's not really what we're talking about now, but it does kind of get to the essence of the podcast. And what you just said speaks to that a little bit. So even though it's a your mind <laughs> and, the, and and the skill that you have, there's like that that magic of kind of letting go. Um, that Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's really easy to get tied up in knots, you know, thinking in one direction and really grinding on something that might not be the right direction. And I think that letting go is really important and it is lodged somewhere in our body or in the air around us. I, I don't know. And I agree with you about solving problems interpersonally or, or for our own lives. I think the heart is 
super important. And I have to say that, you know, even though most math problems are probably solved more in the head than in the heart, there's a, sorry, there's a helicopter going by. <laughs> um, it's life in the big city, can I say, um, that there's a, a deep love of math, that the people I know who spend their lives teaching math or doing math, it feels emotional for us. I mean, there's a real love of an excitement, super excitement about how well everything fits together, mm -hmm. how perfectly everything fits together. It really does. Yeah, there's a piece almost in that of like, <laughs> um, well, I don't know how to ask this question, but I'm, so I'm going to just stumble a little bit with it. Uh, but I'm reflecting on how math, so my son's 10 now, and it's in general seemed to come pretty easy to him. I'm not sure. I just want to acknowledge maybe my judgment about the teaching piece, because I I don't necessarily see that, but I actually don't spend time in the classroom to see that, mm -hmm. depth of, you know, if they're meeting that spectrum that you saw. Right. But my stepdaughter, um, math didn't come easy to her. Um, and it was, but yet the arts came very easy to her. I mean, and it seemed like all arts really, you know, whether it was drawing or singing, or I remember one time she sat down at a, at a, at a piano and just, you know, without any training, just started making music. And I was like, how is she doing that? And but there is like an intuitive sort of way that That's her mind works. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, and so it's always been, well, not always since being a parent, it's been interesting for me to see that and to be curious about so because reading doesn't come easy to my son. So mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. um, where it did for her. And so how to support these different minds. And so when you, since math does come easy to you, how do you approach someone that has more of that artistic lean in their yeah. mind? That's a, that's a great question. Um, I think that everybody, I, I agree with you, brains are really different. They just are. Um, and I can sense that your sons and your stepdaughters' brains work really differently. Um, anything that involves space and time which the arts absolutely do, and you know, music does, dancing does, um, drawing does. They have math embedded in them, and they have physics embedded in them too. I was actually just thinking about, you know, partly why there's such a crisis in math and science. And I think that this is completely my observation, and I, you know, I have no statistics to back this up, but. I see out in the world so many parents not talking to their kids. They're on a device. They put their kids on a device. And less and less I see conversations between parents and little kids out there about, you know, just counting while the kid is hopping down the street or, you know, playing games that involve dice and counting. I mean, I just prescribed playing Monopoly actually to two different families whose kids are beyond the age where they should really rapidly know what four plus three is or six plus seven. Um, they should understand that 12 is a 10 and a two. 
Monopoly helps with all those things, actually, mm-hmm. depending on how you count. The, you know, the board has 10 squares per side. And so, you know, one can use those things. And I, I, I don't, you know, I know schools are doing away with recess early and earlier and trying to push reading younger and younger. But really, there's tremendous value in having kids out in the playground figuring out both physics, you know, sliding and jumping rope are all about physics and figuring out how to get along with each other. And I, I'm concerned. I, I see that in seventh and eighth and 10th graders who don't have any sense of number. I think people think it's going to just magically come into their brains, but just these little conversations that parents can have make such a difference. Counting by twos, counting by fives, putting things in pairs, just the concept of even and odd. I'm coming across 12-year-olds who don't, it's never occurred to them that there are even numbers and odd numbers, which is the most basic way that we can categorize numbers. Wow. And that's, that's a little scary to me. So play, play, play. Play with dice, play with cards, cook, measure things. Nice. Don't do it for your kid. Get your kid to do these things. I think we're taking away a lot of learning experiences. I, I rarely find a child who knows how to use a ruler or even scissors anymore. Mm. I think there was a swing. Gosh, I'm just thinking about that. I Well, Grayson and I do love to play. Well, he he loves to play Monopoly. I resist it because it's like the game that never ends. You know, I'm like, right. am I ready to settle in for hours? And yes, um, that's the downside. The downside. But he loves it. And so... Um, we, I have no, I don't remember how I learned about, yeah, each side being 10 or between, right. um, with the railroads being railroads are five. Exactly. But I've taught him this and he's, yeah, he's, and the dice I've seen, yeah, it really is such a, and he's always the banker, you know, so mm-hmm. we it's all this practice and Great. Um, I would have both the kids cook. And I think one of the really fun things that, well, the fractions with the measuring cups, um, yeah. And then like, you know, occasionally making half of a recipe and stuff. And um, so, yeah, I can really see how that practice of doing those things really builds that skill set for young humans. Yeah. That's something else I thought of when you were saying that. I lost it for the moment, but hopefully it comes back. Um, I love that you said play. I just, I love (laughs) it. makes their job. My brain. It's their job. To play. Yes. Ours too, I think more so than we allow ourselves. Oh, the scissors. I think that like there's hopefully, I think there's we're starting to get this swing back. But I think for some reason there was for a while, like you don't let kids do them those things because they might hurt themselves. I think there was a swing into this like mm. protective parent mode. Mm. And I'm hoping, I mean, I've played with it. Like I let the kids use knives pretty young and um scissors yeah I never regulate but I I wonder I don't think I wonder if that's part of um I I mean I don't know what's happening in the schools regarding all of that but no yeah well I think you know having kids cut things out of paper even in kindergarten or first grade might be perceived by parents who I hear have been reading about this just now in the New York Times that, you know, parents drive the school process and teachers aren't allowed to fail kids anymore because the parents get mad. And I could see that 
some parent perception might say, why are you wasting, you know, why are you wasting my kid's time by having them cut stuff out of paper? They need to learn reading, you know, they need to learn math. I don't know. There's also a definitely, um, or has been, and maybe what you're referring to is maybe this is swinging back. I know there's been a swing toward protecting our kids from mm -hmm. harm. You know, we don't let them walk down the street to the neighbor's house. We don't let them cut stuff up. You know, when when are they going to learn that? If we don't allow them to. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I love that you're sharing this about the teachers because I think this is just such a good reminder about humility. Like as a parent, like, you know, it's such a, yeah, like you said, parents trying to drive this and control the learning environment. And I'm I'm seeing myself in this hearing you talk and it just feels like inviting humility to trust <laughs> but you know like I do my part at home and right. yeah let them use the scissors and the knives right. or bake and play games and trust that the teachers are doing their part to the best of their ability and I don't know how that looks and yeah right and teachers are highly trained professionals <laughs> yes. I mean they are and it's getting harder and harder to be a teacher which makes me want to very quickly insert my solution for the entire education crisis. Would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. Yes, let's hear it. Well, it costs four times as much money as we're spending now, which we could easily get out of the defense budget. You pay teachers twice as much and you cut class sizes in half. Mm. So, I know from being in private schools, having small classes allows the teacher to focus on each individual. And I know that paying them twice as much would keep more high quality people in the teaching profession and attract more people who might otherwise go to law or medicine or something else lucrative. Yeah. Thank you, Nina. I think we can start advocating for that. <laughs> yeah, why not? And I mean, I don't I don't pay a lot of attention um to politics, but I would imagine if that's triggering for some people, or I don't necessarily want to use that word, but there it is. If that um speaking of the defense budget triggering right. that is like, you know, because these can be so polarizing, I guess is what I'm trying to get at. There is yeah. it's not just the defense um that piece of the pie. It can come from, you know, another anywhere. piece of the pie or, or really sure. anywhere because I think that's more um this idea of working together and getting creative instead of coming to um to a budding heads place where there's like then nothing happens sort and of this is the future of our country yeah the quality of the education now in elementary schools determines the future of our country so what are we going to do it's it's wild that i'm getting the goosebumps because i didn't really expect to have this conversation today and yet like it, i've actually been talking about this with a lot of um, friends and my sister and um, just because I and I think that's where it was starting to come out a little bit in judgment in the way I was responding mm -hmm. because mm. I don't have a lot of faith in the education system right now and um, I do have friends that are teachers and I really respect my friends that are teachers and I just I the information that I'm getting as a parent makes me concerned um, mm -hmm. Quality of the education, and so I, I noticed that yeah, I don't have a lot of faith, and so it's fun to have this be challenged <laughs> and to invite humility, but also to consider like, what are we going to do about it? Um, yeah, what can we do? Right, you can blame the teachers, but I can tell you the teachers are being given an impossible job right now. 
kids, you know, over the pandemic, their perspective on education changed and they don't think they need to do so much anymore. And why can't they just stay home? I mean, you probably know that absenteeism and truancy are, are through the roof. A lot of public school systems in their high schools have a absentee rate of 50% chronically mm. absent kids. I mean, that's, that's a national emergency, I think. So we have to get creative. My idea is one idea. I mean, hopefully smarter people or people who have more clout have better ideas than I do. But well, I think sharing them and talking about it as a start. And I, I love, yeah, this not blaming, you know, because there's no healing or solution in the blaming. And no. so just getting curious about, um, yeah, what are some ideas? And, you know, I was thinking more from a personal standpoint, but it's really fun to to bring it back universal because I didn't know. I've just started to make assumptions that it was more where I lived. That mm. was <laughs> but now yeah. I'm like, okay. No, this is talking with you. I'm like, no, this is not just because um, our attendance rate. Yeah, at the high school, I I go and teach yoga and mindfulness sometimes at the high school, and and it is yeah. I've known for years that they have like a huge dropout rate and really yeah. hard time getting um, the kids to come to school consistently. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, <clears throat> okay. C- curious, creative solutions. <laughs> Back to your practice though, since it all does start with us. And, and so, um, you know, you said that you're currently tutoring and yes. how many students do you tutor a week? What does that look like? Um, it's been around 16 to 20 this year, I'm kind of stepping down a little. And, um, I still, I got a request just today. I'm still getting requests from people who are discovering their kids are missing something and want some help, but I hope to keep it below 15 between 12 and 15. And really that's my practice. My practice isn't so much doing the math, but engaging with students with math. Mm. I want them to feel empowered. I want them to enjoy it. I want them to have aha moments. And it's so gratifying because they do. I mean, I have a, a big football player of a of a student who's now getting drafted by colleges. He's in 11th grade, but I think I've been with him, well, since the beginning of the pandemic. I think he was in eighth grade. And he keeps asking his parents if he can take me to college with him. Oh. <laughs> At which point, he'll really outstrip my math ability. But <laughs> just the fact that, you know, a math tutor can be somebody that a student trusts and values and wants to engage with. Um, that's the most gratifying part. And as I was saying before, the practice for me of really listening You know, you might think of a teacher as somebody who comes all prepared with a lecture on how to do something. I I never have, I mean, to any extent that I've done lecturing at all, it's um, totally wrapped up with having the students also writing and thinking and contributing to a conversation because we only, we all learn actively. Nobody learns by having somebody, I mean, think of the last, uh, what's it called? PowerPoint, you know, presentation where you were reading it and you were hearing it and your brain was falling asleep. We learn by, by being active and by doing. And so that 
practice of engaging and having a back and forth and listening and reflecting and figuring out on the spot what to have the student write or do or say or figure out that has them actively engaged. Um, and you can't believe the number of times. I mean, it's every day that students are saying, oh, I wish my teacher had shown me this or, oh, thank you so much. That makes so much sense. Um, that's my practice. Hmm. Really. That's so beautiful. And I really just the word that stood out to me is listening. Yeah, I just think more of that in all of our I'm lives. I'm nodding my head. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> um, are they spending an hour a week, each student, or is it more than that? Each one of the students. Most students are 45 minutes to an hour once a week. I find that middle school students, I always start them with 45 minutes. It's a rare even eighth grader who really has the staying power for an hour. That's very arbitrary, you know? Mm -hmm. If they need it and they can do it, great. If they need twice a week for half an hour, I'll do that. Um, high school students tend to do more like an hour a week. And most of the students I only need once a week. But, you know, I'm, I'm always available for extra sessions if they have a big test coming up or if they're also studying for SATs or something like that. That makes me curious. So are they... Do you give them stuff to work on when they're not with you? So are they practicing additionally while they're not with you? During the school year, I generally don't because during the school year, our conversation starts with what is happening in class. Mm -hmm. What do you need to learn? What are you working on? Let me see. And a lot of our work now is over Zoom, but they can all take pictures of their work or share their screen and show me what they're working on. In the summer... I'm charged with keeping their math up, uh, remediating math and something that, you know, is still weak that they need help with in order to be successful the following year. And so in the summer, I'm really developing a curriculum for each of my students and giving each of my students homework. So that's a, a little heavier lift and a different dynamic. Yeah. But um, during the school year, they have enough, at least here, so I am in Washington, D.C., the students are quite loaded down with homework. And so I don't, I try not to add to that unless, you know, I have some algebra students right now who really don't have their multiplication tables down and they absolutely have to. So I'm coming up with ways for them to learn and practice those on an ongoing basis so that they can strengthen that. Ooh, fun. I'd love to hear your ideas for that. Like, is there okay, a <laughs> talk about that later. <laughs> Have you, I, as I've been listening to you talk, one of the things I've wondered is if any of the students you've worked with have went on to teach math themselves. Um, a couple of my students from when I was teaching school have, and that's very gratifying. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I would, yeah. That's, yeah, that's, that seems fun to have inspired in that way. Um, do you see yourself tutoring for the rest of your life? Uh, I was just having a retirement conversation with my husband, who <laughs> just retired, and uh, his greater availability of time now makes me to want to have a little greater availability of time also to visit our kids and grandkids and see a few parts of the world before we're too old to travel. So um, in a few years, I'll be 70, and I'm planning to stop then. If there are 
some kids I've really developed a bond with who still need me for a couple more years, I can see keeping a few students. Um, it's very hard to let go of them emotionally. Mm-hmm. We do develop really wonderful relationships and um, I don't tutor calculus and I shouldn't tutor pre-calculus, although I am with a couple of kids right now. But, um, you know, when I have to say goodbye to them, it's it's hard. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. But I'm planning to be mostly phased out around age 70. Yeah. Okay. That's, it's wild for me that, yeah, like to hear your age, I was like, wait a second, that's not possible. <laughs> it's the hiking that keeps me young. <laughs> hey, note that listeners, the hiking. <laughs> and the conversations with young people. Oh, I imagine. Yeah, that makes sense. Super important. I mean, I would say that to everybody as a, you know, I can call myself an elder. I would say, stay engaged with people who are younger and older than you are that's one of our greatest learning tools we learn so much from people in different generations they have a completely different perspective on the world and again i would use the word listening it's the most important thing we can do i think for the fabric of our society Mm. including with all these differences we we find ourselves challenged by um just listen Mm. it's free it is and that's so beautiful and i think that open-mindedness with that you know listening invites that like because if we are truly listening we're not trying to figure out how to respond or whether they're right or wrong we're just taking it in and taking in the human and yeah I found in recent years that yeah I've learned so much from people who have different views than me and it has really softened me to not be so quick to judge um you know others that I'm not close to that have these different views right and I would say the other thing is for the almost almost universally, I'm sure there are exceptions, but we're all doing the best we can. People mm-hmm. come from whatever set of circumstances they come from and they figure things out as well as they can. And here we are. So, you know, just listen. Mm-hmm. We'll be our the great gift. I mean, you've given <laughs> so many gifts in this interview this morning and that really, yeah, that's, yeah. Thank you, Nina. The last question that I have, I've just started asking recently because I've actually, I mean, it's, it's fun. I'm just going to, I normally don't say this, but it does really fit in with what we're talking about today. I've recently heard some statistics about how few books um, people in our country are reading uh, today and um, that most people won't even read a book, one book in a year, which is wild to me because I, I, yeah, I read a lot. And so my question, so that's a little backstory on it. I've started asking this question, just, you know, I think um, books are obviously still selling, you know, <laughs> right? someone's reading them. Um, and I'm curious what you're currently reading. Um, I just started the book called Horse by Geraldine Brooks. Oh, I love you that. You know it? Yeah, I read it. <laughs> so good. My best friend recommended it and then bought it for me at the Moab bookstore. And I gave her um, the book that I had just finished reading called A Tale for the Time Being by Ruth Ozeki. Very good book. A Tale for the Time Being. Tale like in story or tale like in story? Yes. Um, It involves the Pacific Northwest, Japan, both kind of 100 years ago because there's a Japanese 
young girl character whose grandmother is an over 100-year-old Buddhist nun. And the Fukushima disaster and just a lot of cultural stuff about Japan. It's very interestingly written. You can kind of tell, I guess. I like historically based fiction. Both of these books I would recommend. I, I also enjoy historically based fiction. Yeah. Mm. Nina, this has been such a pleasure. I love that. Yeah, like just not knowing what to expect and just how much beauty and grace and just the gifts that you shared in this interview today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm really happy to talk to you. Thank you for asking me to do this. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> My interview, I'm like, oh, I want to like have another conversation, a follow-up. So you never you know, might. might reach out for a follow-up in the future. Sounds good. Awesome. Take care. Thank you. Have a great day, Nina. You too. Bye. Bye. What a gift it was to talk with Nina today on the podcast. I want to share a few of my takeaways from this conversation and episode. So the first is, who knew that math, the practice of math, could be so heart-centered? Nina did. And what a wonderful job she did of sharing that with us today in the conversation. A few other takeaways, one of my favorite and something I really have been trying for most of my adult life to bring into my life and practice is play. She said, make it fun. We learn by doing and bring it into the everyday through games. And then intuition in order to solve problems, sleep on it or focus on something else regarding staying youthful. Spend time with people who are older than you or younger than you. And then listen. Listen to each other. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast today. If you like this episode, share it with someone you love. Thank you for tuning in to the Ritual of Practice podcast. You can find the show home at ritualofpractice.com. Follow us on your favorite listening platform to receive weekly inspiration for your practices. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you love. Until next time, keep practicing.